It's so good to be with you all at Christ Church again. It's an honor to be with you on the second Sunday of Advent. Um, as I've been looking at social media posts in the season, one thing's caught my attention. It's the reluctance, hesitation, or fear as people post good things that are happening in their life, whether a celebration that they're experiencing personally, an act of worship, and there always seems to be some um, caveat put to it. Like, I, I know people are not doing well. I know people are struggling, but. Or after they post, somebody will say, you know people are dying. Why are you being so happy? But I want to suggest that that instinctive response of hope and joy in the midst of darkness and despair is an essential discipline and a core attribute of the church. Whenever we encounter injustice and darkness, depression or despair, it's particularly a core discipline of the church during Advent. When it gets, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere, darker and darker each day. We light candles. We sing God's praises. We begin to announce in word and in deed and in power that Jesus Christ reigns, even in the midst of the darkness. And part of what I hope we've been hearing as we've been walking through Revelation as a church is that Revelation reminds us and offers us a God-saturated, God-centered, God-defined imagination and understanding of what the world is really like so that we have hope, whether we face pandemic or persecution, ignorance or anarchy, depression or the darkness that just comes with this particular season. So how do we respond? What does it look like for us to be a church filled with hope because we know who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. I want to suggest that in part it centers around worship, which is, what, which is why it's so crucial that you're here this Sunday. As the church gathers in worship, as we worship this God who reveals himself in all of his glory and revelation, we're given the hope to endure, to thrive, and to be a blessing to the people around us and to the world. So our text today comes out of Revelation chapter 19 verses 6 through 9, and let me read that to us. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. We respond to the darkness with exuberant worship because we believe God triumphs and reigns. That's what's going on, I think, in the first few verses of this passage. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, all of nature and all of supernature. The heavens and the earth began their chorus of praise, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder that rock our homes during a great thunderstorm in the summer. And they're all shouting the same thing, hallelujah, praise the Lord, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice 
and be glad and give him the glory. Revelation insistently drives us toward worship. No matter how hard the conditions, no matter how dark the situation, Revelation calls us to worship. It happens at the very first chapters as Jesus proclaims who he is, the firstborn from among the dead, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And those punctuations and songs of worship continue in chapter 4 as people worship at the throne, at chapter 5, as they worship the Lamb who was slain, in chapter 7, as the great gathering of God's people occurs. Chapter after chapter, no matter how dim the situation, no matter how intense the persecution, no matter how deep the despair, the church is called worship God because he's, he's enthroned, he reigns, and he saves, and he's at work. There's no other place to go in the midst of persecution or injustice in the midst of despair or discouragement than worship. Worship binds together the pain and the problem of the present-day world with salvation and with song. We worship God not just for what he did in the past, but what he will accomplish in the future and what he's doing right now. A few months ago when I was with you last, we walked through the book, uh, first chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and I told the story of a woman named Ina who used to criticize my prayers at our church service, but she said, I often want to walk out exuberant after worship, but you depress me with your prayers about people who are dying and suicide and death and disease. Why do you do it? And I told her at that time, I do it because I want to worship God fully aware of how hard the world is, how dark it can be, and how great the pain may be because as an act of faith, I believe that I can only sing about God's great love lasting forever if I truly believe that's true when I look at how bad the world is. That I must exercise faith when I talk about his saving grace for all of the nations and all the peoples of the world while I simultaneously think of war and famine and pestilence and disease. If I can't hold those two together, I told her, um, then really religion is the opiate of the masses. It's just designed to dull us from an awareness of the pain around us. But instead, I think, worship heightens our sensitivities to those things. We reflect on how good and gracious God is, and simultaneously, how much remains undone in what he desires to do. And so this chapter begins, or at least the section we're looking at, with this great call to worship, that God will accomplish what he intends, and God will reign. And I think if we're attentive to it in the book of Revelation, in part what worship does is it acts as a great act of protest. No matter how out of control the world may seem, God is still in control. No matter how powerful the um, reality of death may be, the one who is the resurrection and the firstborn from the dead continues to reign and rule. No matter how faint my faith may be, the focus of my faith in Jesus Christ, will actually hold me and keep me steadfast. Worship, ultimately, I think, is a great act of protest against the principalities and powers that bind people, the realities of sin that are both uh, personal and systemic. It's a great proclamation that God is in charge. In 1988, in South Africa, kind of at the waning days of apartheid, an explosion went off at the National Council of Church Building. The National Council of Churches, led by um, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who many of us would be familiar with, was probably the loudest and most effective voice for change and protest in the country. And one night in 1988, 
somebody blew up the building as a way perhaps to demonstrate to those religious protesters, to those advocating for change, that they were of no consequence. Their building could be blown up, their bodies could be blown up. It did not matter. That next morning, as people began to gather around the ruins of the National Council of Churches building, um, there was a lot of question of what would happen. Would this spark a protest? Would this spark violence in the community? Would this cause um, even greater trauma to be um, inflicted in that community? And it was fascinating because as those Christian leaders gathered around the wreckage of their headquarters, fully justified, I suspect, if they wanted to start a march, if they wanted to protest, if they wanted to respond with violence against that sense of violence, as was often happening in South Africa during those years, Bishop Tutu and other people just started to laugh, and they began to sing this song. Freedom, oh freedom, freedom, freedom is coming, oh yes, I know. And as the leaders began to sing that, the crowd began to join in, in the song they're all familiar with, freedom. And all of a sudden, the communities began to sing, freedom, freedom, freedom is coming, oh yes, I know. And it wasn't just freedom in the kind of aspirational sense or in that vague abstract sense, because the next verse of that song goes this way. It's an Advent song, in effect. Jesus, 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 Jesus is coming. Oh, yes, I know. And as they proclaimed their confidence that Jesus would return, that Jesus was coming back as both judge and redeemer, sanctifier and savior, all of the hints of violence and anger and hatred that could have occurred at that moment began to dissipate. And as an act of protest, they proclaimed that though the powers of apartheid were strong, though they were crushing and oppressive, there was yet one who was coming who was greater than that. Worship is a tremendous act of protest against the apathy and antagonism that we experience in the world, as well as the darkness that surrounds us. And so Revelation chapter 19, in part, challenges us to respond to the darkness around us with exuberant worship, worship that proclaims that God reigns. And in the darkness of Advent, this is why we gather on a Sunday to sing together, dispersed as we are, to hear God's word spoken, even on video, and to take the Lord's Supper together. We respond to the darkness with exuberant worship, focused in particular, I think, on God's faithfulness. The second half of our passage talks about why they are worshiping at that moment. And they say, For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. It reminds us that God will be faithful to us. And I think faithful in two senses. He will be faithful to us by preserving us, and he will be faithful to us by executing judgment and bringing justice against those who destroy us. Let's take those in order. First, I think God will preserve us. That's what the beauty of that one line seems to be. The wedding supper of the Lamb has come, and the bride is now ready. The bride is ready. Despite the appalling apostasy and hypocrisy and mediocrity of the church, the bride will be ready. Dorothy Sayers 
um, once said God underwent three great humiliations in the course of saving humanity. Um, one was the incarnation when the Lord Almighty God of the universe took on human flesh, the one who created the galaxies, couldn't even control his own hands. The second great humiliation of God was at the cross as he dies in our place and on our behalf, stripped naked, subject to abuse, bearing the sin of the world. Then she said the third great humiliation of God in the process of saving humanity is the church. In all of its lukewarmness, in all of its compromise and complicity. But this passage reminds us the bride will be ready. Often on social media, you'll see people critiquing the church, often with quite good reason. We've been silent in the face of evil far too often. We've been far too concerned with preserving our own privilege and power. Um, we look more like the culture than we look like Jesus, to which most of us, if we were honest and not feeling defensive, we would say guilty. But often they do it with a sense of maliciousness or anger, along with the subtext, I no longer believe. I've given up hope in the church. And the response that I often give when I'm invited or when I'm reflecting on social media is this, I will give up on the church as soon as I give up on the Holy Spirit. As long as I believe God will triumph, I will never give up on the church because one day the bride will be ready. The verse I cling to is first, uh, comes out of Philippians 1.6, right? Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And Revelation 19 gives us a picture of that day. God will not stop the process that he began when we turn to him until one day we individually and we collectively look like Jesus. We will be ready in two ways. By what's given to us and by what we do. Fine linen, it says, it was given to the bride so that the bride would be resplendent. Uh, for this day. And it's also a representation of the righteous acts of God's holy people. How is it the bride is both given this thing and it's reflective of her own acts? I suggest maybe that's because Ephesians 2.10 really is true. We are God's handiwork, Paul tells us, created to complete the good work God prepared for us to do. Right? God prepared this good work, the linen was handed to us, and the good work that we did becomes the beauty of the church. And I think that's a little bit of what your church has experienced in the last couple of weeks. As you've volunteered and as you've served in the community, it hasn't gone to your glory, but it's given God glory. It was the work you were called and created to do that adds credibility and power to your witness. So in the coming weeks, whether it's writing a check or checking your privilege so that other people have some space, whether it's eating more simply in the next couple of weeks so that others could simply eat, whether it's any of those kind of um, taglines, or the choice to call somebody that you know who's been isolated because of COVID in a nursing home or an apartment, whether it's acting with compassion to the people in your workplace, whether you're distant or in person, whether it's repudiating untruths about race or sex or gender or other issues, whether it's taking a stand on a difficult issue. When we choose to do those things, in Jesus' name, it adds to the glory of what God is accomplishing in the church. When we witness verbally to the people around us, I believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. 
the bride begins to look beautiful. As we do the things that you've been doing to serve the community, the bride begins to glow with the very glory of God. God will protect and allow the church to persevere. That's one way he'll be faithful. He's faithful to those promises that he's made. And I hope if you're struggling or you're wrestling with doubt or you wonder whether the church is worth it, part of what Revelation 19 gives you hope for is that God will be faithful. The choice to be engaged as a church isn't futile. But God also is faithful in another way. He will judge evil. The same sovereign power which God uses to vindicate his church will also be used to judge evil. The bride of the Lamb at this part of chapter 19 stands in stark contrast to the prostitute who was judged and condemned in chapter 18. The same judicial decree which condemns the prostitute redeems the bride. You see, salvation isn't just about our rescue from evil. It is certainly that as we turn to Jesus, but it's also about the defeat of evil itself. Before there can be a triumphant hallelujah chorus at the reign of God arriving, there must be an equally robust praise the Lord at the downfall of evil at the hand of God. Our goal isn't merely just to save ourselves from the terror and the tragedy around us, but for God to change it, to redeem it, and to bring justice. Revelation um, personifies all of the powers that would seduce us away from God as the great prostitute described um, in the preceding chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, It's the great prostitute for corrupting the earth with her adulteries, um, which is described in verse 2 of chapter 19. And throughout the Old Testament, the image of adultery and prostitution um, were reflections of apostasy, of selling out Yahweh for an idol. And just as a prostitute betrays a marriage by selling her body and soul to the highest bidder, um, Israel had done the same, and so frequently the church does the same, doesn't it? It's traded love for lucre. It's traded um, body and soul to the highest bidder. It's a relational union um, for a contractual sensation. It's just getting some rather than being known and knowing. Eugene Peterson, who wrote a beautiful book on Revelation called Reverse Thunder, uh, put it this way. The prostitute sums up every temptation to abandon God, every trap to betray Jesus, every ambush to our endurance, every seduction to our faith. In Revelation 18, it's described in terms of an economic empire in which nations and merchants luxuriate in riches, the best food, the best clothes, the best toys. Sound familiar at all? Part of what Revelation calls us to in chapter 19 is to worship God with exuberance and to worship him for his faithfulness at preserving the bride and for judging the great prostitute. I suspect, though, for many of us, we feel trapped. Um, Trapped, entangled, or enmeshed by powers that feel greater than ourselves, right? Um, The line between saying, I will give my allegiance to the pathway that leads me to become the beautiful bride of Christ feels riddled with detours, um, addictions and temptations and weaknesses. I wonder, as we hit Advent and begin to reflect on the year that's passed, um, where we've been seduced a little this year sold ourselves and our God for security, whether in relationship, in finances, for those of you who are students in grades, or in sensations, whether physical, emotional, or intellectual? Where is our pursuit of comfort, acceptance, 
or a reputation cause us to wed ourselves to an idea, an action, an ideology, or a belief which overtly or covertly, intentionally or unintentionally, causes us to betray God, to settle for something far less than what he desires. I think of a student that I ministered to um, back when I was on staff at the University of Chicago. Um, His name was Peter, and Peter and I would meet regularly at the Medici, which was a cafe just off the campus at the University of Chicago. I would buy him lunch because that was the way to lure students into a meeting with me was to offer to feed them. Um, If you feed them, they'll always come. And I remember Peter was at a, 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 a season in his life where he was really struggling with his, uh, his academics and life in general. His faith was going downhill. He was really struggling. And I finally said to him over a meal, I think I was eating a burger at the time, I said, why are you studying what you're studying? And like many students, um, Peter was an econ who was planning to be pre-med. And I said, you're not good at these things. Why are you studying this? And Peter began to tell me, Um, about his dreams for his future, what he wanted to accomplish. And he was waxing eloquent, and um, suddenly he turned to me and said, what's wrong? I I guess I kind of lost that pastoral poker face you're supposed to have, you know, kind of understanding and accepting and nodding. I must have looked a little, he goes, what's wrong with these dreams and values? And I said, well, why are you doing this? What is this worth to you? Because Peter had been talking about basically the lifestyle that he wanted. And I said, and then he looked at me and said, Craig, what's wrong with wanting to be comfortable? Now, I have to admit, I didn't really have a good answer to that. So I picked up my burger and just started, I took a bite because it bought me some time. And then I swallowed and I said, Peter, what do you mean by comfortable? And he said, well, do you mean as a single person or as a married person? And to give you a sense of how close Peter and I were and how well I knew him, I said, look, Peter, you're not going to even get a date for a couple more years as far as I can tell. How about you as a single person? And Peter didn't even blink. He took it, okay, yeah. So, um, and he said, uh, you know, and this is maybe 15, 20 years ago, $65,000. And my jaw dropped, and I really didn't know what to tell Peter for a moment. So I took another bite of the burger and I thought, do I tell Peter that for $65,000 a year as a single person, he's already in the top 10% of the U.S. by income, even if he were part of a family of four? Do I tell him how much $65,000 a year, again, this is like 20 years ago, but it's still a lot of money, um, might mean in the community of Hyde Park in Kenwood in which we lived as students at the University of Chicago? But thankfully, the Lord um, spared me from pontificating at him as I chewed that little last bit of burger. And as I swallowed, I think what I said to Peter was this, Peter, it's not that you want so much that troubles me. It's that you're willing to settle for so little. And he said, what do you mean? I said, Peter, Jesus Christ died for you in your place and on your behalf. I'm confident the Holy Spirit is in you, transforming you every day into greater glory until one day you will look like Jesus. I believe God has invited you to partner with him to accomplish the great work, not just of saving the people around you, but changing the systems and structures that fail to reflect his concerns for righteousness and justice and oppress the people around you. He's inviting you to participate in the greatest redemption the world has ever seen, and you're willing to settle for $65,000. I'm just as disappointed that you'd be willing to commit your life to something so small. 
it's not that his career goals were wrong. Many people have been called to similar things. And it's not that having wealth was the problem. But in his single-minded pursuit of what he thought would make him happy, but what he thought would give him security, Peter was slowly destroying himself and his faith. I wonder how often we might settle for something that's a little too small and a little too short. Revelation 19 calls us to something greater and better. Revelation 19 calls us in the midst of darkness and oppression to proclaim and worship our God reigns and to worship exuberantly and then to live with great trust and hope and faithfulness that God will be faithful to redeem and make a bride ready for himself. The bride will be ready. And to trust him even though we may cry out against injustice and believe that it may actually overwhelm that one day God will look at the scheming of rulers and powers and principalities and systems and structures and laugh from heaven as he judges it and demonstrates that his glory and his honor, his righteousness and his holiness far surpass any of the machinations of those who are committed to evil and to sin. That one day the world will be filled with the glory of God like water fills the seas. Revelation ends with basically an orientation invitation. There are two contrasting pictures of salvation delivered to two contrasting objects with two contrasting ends. Both begin with a great multitude shouting hallelujah, both at the beginning of verse 19 and the section of chapter 19 that we looked at. Salvation is declared um, as vindication of righteous judgment against the prostitute in verses 1 and 2, and an even greater crowd crying salvation and delighting in it because of his sanctifying acts on behalf of the bride of Christ. Um, Will you praise God for both and trust God that he'll preserve his bride and judge evil? There are two contrasting objects of his salvific acts. The great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her adulteries and who spilled the blood of the saints in verse 2 and the bride of the lamb who is arraigned in fine linen, bright and clean. Will you personally pursue a path that leads you to be clean and beautiful for the Lord or corrupted by your own lack of faithfulness? And then there's two contrasting ends this past lead us to. One is the great wedding banquet that's promised um, in verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Or an invitation to a great horrific supper of God where the nations are judged so deeply and so thoroughly that the slaughter can barely be understood. Ultimately, as we gather at Advent, we remember Christ's first coming and we live in anticipation of his second. And we do so profoundly committed to pursuing God in worship. It's our protest against injustice. It's our declaration of the truth that God reigns. It's the reorientation for us that draws us toward the bride rather than to the one who's unfaithful. And in fact, that's why we gather for communion together. When we gather for communion, we're remembering what Jesus Christ accomplished 
in his death and in his resurrection. And as we take, we're anticipating the great supper that God invites us to, where one day we walk into his presence and he will say, my child, welcome home. And at least in an Asian family, what they would say is, sit down and let's eat. Let's pray together. Lord, we trust you. And we proclaim above all the other data that we see around us, you reign and you rule. You are sovereign and you are supreme and you will accomplish your purposes both in us, in the church, and in the world. And so we worship you. And as we come to the communion table, we remember your death and resurrection and we remember with anticipation the great wedding feast that you invite us to. Make us ready, Lord, both for your coming and for that great day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.